Hi, I'm Ellie Roark. I'm Wilson Gall. And you're listening to the Fledgling Theories Podcast, where every month we bring you a new piece of bird research. Um, this month we're talking about an article called Tidal Flooding is Associated with Lower Ectoparasite Intensity in Nests of the Saltmarsh Sparrow. That's by Josh Nightingale and Chris S. Elphick, and that's published in the Wilson Journal of Ornithology in 2017. As always, you can join in the conversation with us about the article on Twitter. You can find us at Fledgecast. So this is an article about flooding and nests. These are tidal birds that nest in areas that flood. It's also an article about parasites, ticks and mites and things like that. But more than that, I think it's an article about trade-offs. And trade-offs in fitness and sort of from an evolutionary perspective. So in this system, um, the nests of these birds are frequently flooded. And when that happens, sometimes, but not always, uh, the eggs or the chicks die. And so this seems like a terrible sort of catastrophic right, like failure. Why would you put your nest in a place where it would flood? Yeah, it sort of, it, it makes you wonder how has this continued to be a successful life strategy for these birds yep. over time in, from an evolutionary perspective. Why didn't all the birds that nest in areas that get flooded just get wiped out uh, by natural selection at some point along the line? And this is sort of the question, anytime you, you see something with that seems to have big costs, you know, like bird migration. Why on earth would you fly 2,000 miles twice a year? When there's a huge cost like that, there's usually some sort of a benefit that is associated with it. Right. The winter is a pretty huge cost also, so migrating to get away from winter makes sense. Yeah. Right. So this article is looking at, at one of those potential relationships between a cost and a potential benefit. So the cost is this flooding of the nest, and the potential benefit they're looking at is a reduction in parasites in the nest that's associated with the flooding. So what's the deal with flooding of saltmarsh sparrow nests? How common is it? Why does it happen? Well, saltmarsh sparrows are coastal wetland nesters. So they nest in these tidal areas. You can kind of picture like a marshy area right on the edge of the, the ocean where the tide kind of uh, comes in and out of, of tall grass. And saltmarsh sparrows live in that habitat and they nest um, in the grass, basically. And so they're subject to kind of the like periodic inundation of the tide. And they, they nest in, on the east coast of North America, I should say. It's an endangered species. They have a very limited range. And so in Connecticut, where the study was taking place, 85% of all saltmarsh sparrows flood at least once during the breeding season. And 70% of all saltmarsh sparrows nest, all saltmarsh sparrow nests, uh, flood twice or more during the breeding season. So they're inundated quite a bit. So if most of these nests are flooding twice a year, 70% of these nests are flooding twice a year, this isn't like floods like you see on the news, like a hurricane comes in and floods a whole coastal area. This is some. This is much more regular. No, this is like the high tide and a little bit of wind <laughs> and flooding their nests. So they've, they've built their nests in the, the tide area, yeah. the tidal area. Okay. Um, and I should say that, that saltmarsh sparrows can deal with a little bit of the submersion. It's not like um, they build their nests and, and the tide comes in and that's it. You know, they're not, they don't have that much trouble. They can, the nest can be submerged for about 90 minutes without a problem. So if you're right on the edge of that tidal zone, it might be okay. So in addition to this nest flooding, which can kill the, the chicks and the eggs, 
What other threats are there to these birds? I mean, the birds are endangered. Are, are they endangered because of this nest flooding? Or what else is going on? No, the nest flooding is kind of the typical baseline of, of how these birds, how the life cycle of these birds goes. Um, but the main issue, the reason they're endangered, is just because this coastal wetland habitat is disappearing. Their habitat loss is, is pretty extreme. And we expect that sea level rise will make a difference in eliminating more of that habitat. Sea level rise might also make a difference in making the flooding more common. So in addition to the habitat loss, there's probably all sorts of lesser threats, but they're still sort of balanced right on the edge of being successful in all sorts of things. So there's the flooding. There's also parasites. Parasites are a cost for, for all birds. These mites and ticks that can uh, you know, bite them and take energy away from them by taking blood. They can introduce blood infections, all sorts of things. Uh, like that, that are a cost of having parasites. Yeah, so how common are parasites? Like why, it seems like flood, subjecting yourself to this kind of flooding is a pretty extreme cost to avoid parasites. I think parasites are pretty common in birds. Like I think a lot of birds have some sort of mites that are um, sort of chewing on their feathers or eating their feathers or some sort of mites or ticks that are biting them in some way. Um, I think there are studies, if I'm recalling correctly, where the the colorfulness of male plumage in birds uh, might be sort of indicating that the birds are fit because they're able to resist parasites. A bird that's not able to resist parasites has lots of things chewing its feathers and it basically loses its color because of all its parasites chewing <laughs> its feathers. I didn't know that. Yeah, whereas, whereas a, a bird that's maybe more immune or, or able to resist parasites won't have as many things chewing its feathers. I mean, that's one theory. But anyway, sure. it's, parasites are pretty common in birds, I think. Yeah. And, and can impose pretty significant fitness costs in, in terms of the health of the animal. Yeah. We should also say that that's not the only trade-off present here with the flooding. There are also predators. You might be able to escape from predators if you're in an area that floods regularly and you can't have a little, you know, fox or whatever um, come in and, and snatch your eggs or your nestlings. So what are the study questions here? They're, they're interested in this trade-off between the flooding and the parasites in this case. Yep. What are the questions that they used to go about investigating that trade-off? So the main questions that they were trying to test here were um, comparing the parasite burden, how many parasites there were in nests that flooded and failed, didn't produce a single successful bird, versus nests that had other outcomes. So nests that flooded and still succeeded, or nests that failed for other reasons that were not flooding related, things like that. So like, is there a difference in the number of parasites found in nests that flood and fail versus other things? And then their second study question was trying to test the influence of nest material on how many parasites you find there. Is, is building your nest out of, you know, smooth cord grass a way to reduce the parasite load? potentially. They were asking that question because um, there have been some studies that suggest that uh, building nests with certain plants can have anti-parasite benefits because some plants have chemicals or compounds that seem to repel certain kinds of pests. Um, and so it might be beneficial to put those plants in your nest because it would sort of act as a repellent to keep the ticks and the mites away. Now I think in these nests they said that usually the material was dried grass by the, by the time that fledglings were hatching and this sort of thing. And so they thought that maybe those chemicals were sort of n no longer still fresh and around. Yeah. Um, but there could be other issues too. Maybe just sort of the, the structure of the material might 
have lots of nooks and crannies that are good home for ticks and another material might not. So that's why they're testing that because there, there could be some way in which the, the plant that you use helps get rid of pests or right. keep them away. Yeah, basically the, yeah, the gist of the article is trying to get at how salt marsh sparrows deal with parasite reduction, trade-offs to try to eliminate some of these parasites. So basically how they did this was they had, in the summer of 2013, they, they surveyed three big marshes in Connecticut, on the coast of Connecticut, and they searched for nests walking systematically through the marshes about once a week. And then, um, and they typically found the nests that they used in the study while the nest was either under construction or had eggs in it. Um, and then once they found a nest, they monitored it closely every three days until the young fledged or the nest failed. Um, and then once the, once the nest had kind of reached its final outcome, whether fledglings or failure, they collected the nest to measure the parasite load in the nest. So when the nests failed, part of their study question is looking at nest nests that failed because of flooding versus nests that failed for other reasons because they wanted to compare the parasites. So how did they decide whether a nest had failed because of flooding or because of a predator of some sort, a crow or something like that? Yeah, well, they had to estimate it because they didn't witness the nest failure, but the, the criteria they used to call a nest failed because of flooding was whether if the nest was under found underwater, um, if it was wet, soaking wet, or if it had intact eggs and chicks still in it, like, but it didn't look like they'd been eaten, basically. They just were still present but dead. But if the if they found a nest that was dry and the eggs were gone. Yeah, they did not call that failure due to flooding. That would be failure due to some other some other reason. Yeah. Like, you know, okay. predators or or who knows. Okay. So after they collected the nest, so after the nest failed or the chicks fledged, left the nest, they collected the nest fairly promptly after that, um, right. which means they, they sort of picked it up and took it back to the lab, sealed up in a plastic bag. And they did this promptly so that any mites or ticks or other parasites that were in there wouldn't have time to leave or die or whatever. So they brought these nests, the full intact nest, back to the lab. And then they got the invertebrates out using a, a modified Burley's Tolgren funnel, which is basically like a metal funnel, and you, you put the nest in it, um, and then you basically put a light bulb over the top, and the light and the heat, both those things sort of dry out the nest, and the, the light drives the invertebrates away from the light and away from the heat. They sort of burrow down, and eventually they burrow out the bottom of the nest into this metal funnel where they fall down into a cup of preservative alcohol or something like that. So this is an, an old method used sometimes for collecting invertebrates out of soil, like you would put a soil sample in there, and evidently uh, it seems to work well enough for getting the invertebrates out of these nests. Yeah, we did have a, an invertebrate specialist who we just happened to be talking to recently tell us that this is a little bit out of favor these days in terms of invertebrate sampling. Yeah, he was a soil person, though. This, this mm. isn't what they use for soil anymore. They basically use a more intense version where it's much hotter at the top and much colder at the bottom to yeah. create a, a stronger gradient. But um, yeah, he said these Tilgren funnels were like from the 20s and <laughs> not to use. But I, so I don't know whether that is, is an adequate method for nests or not. I mean, it's, it's definitely a different study system. But it, Yeah, I don't know either. And so I think they only managed to get 
how, how many nests did they monitor, do you recall? I, I think they ended up with about 23 eligible nests, nests. like a, a pretty okay. small number. But granted, salt marsh sparrows are very endangered species. They only had three coastal wetlands they were monitoring in Connecticut. It's, it's kind of a difficult species to get high sample size for. Okay, so they had 23 nests, some of which would have failed, some of which did not fail. So this is not a huge sample size. Um, and so that limits the number of different things you can test, basically. Like, there's all kinds of questions you want, want to ask here. They want to ask about the number of parasites and whether or not it flooded. And uh, they also wanted to ask a question about, remember, the, the type of plant that it was used. Um, and you could think of all kinds of other things you might want to ask, too. But when you have a limited sample size, you can only test a few variables. Right. Um, and so they did some sort of... Uh, variable selection based on what they expected to be important and based on what sort of used some exploratory statistical methods to choose the models that they used for testing. So nevertheless, it's sort of a small sample size and it's a little limited in what it can tell you. You, you, you can't ask every question you would want to ask <laughs> right, yeah. with a study of this size, very which, true. Is, which is a very common thing for any study. Like you, Sometimes there's just nothing you can do to get more samples and so you just have to Pick your questions, and that's the limitation that you have to yeah, work within. Yeah, figure out what you can realistically understand about what's going on. So basically what they found is that lethally flooded nests, nests that failed because they, they flooded, had fewer parasites than nests with other outcomes. Way fewer. Way like, fewer. Like 15% fewer parasites in yeah. the nests that failed with flooding. Right. So it kind of seems like... The flooding is helping to get rid of some of those parasites, washing them away or something. <laughs> but, but still, you sort of say, well, that's all well and good. Great. You have 15% fewer parasites. Right. But what's the point? Because all your eggs and chicks are right. dead. All those nests failed. Right. So. so how could this possibly play into this consideration of the trade-off? How, how does this even matter? Yeah. Well, so of the nests that flooded, 53% remained active ended up with fledged young. So these are nests that, as you say, survived that 90 minutes of inundation and it dried out and the chicks were still healthy and going. Exactly, exactly. So not every nest that flooded failed. Okay. There are nests that failed from flooding, but only about half of them failed. Only half of the ones that flooded failed and the others were successful. So in those other ones, the flooding happens, the chicks are fine and, and Presumably, if those nests also had fewer parasites, you know, if that flooding, if that tide is washing the ticks and the mites out of the nest, then if you survive the flooding, then you're in a good place because now you have no more ticks and mites in your nest. Right. Awesome. <laughs> it's useful. It was worth building your nest in the flooding area. So the question is, from, from sort of an evolutionary perspective, how this continues to happen in the population is, is the the risk, the 50% chance of losing your nest if it floods, is that worth the benefit of a 15% reduction in parasites? Well, it depends how severe the uh, negative effects of parasites are. So, you know, we know that parasites have an effect on, on body mass for birds, and, and body mass has big implications, especially salt marsh sparrows in Connecticut do migrate. They don't stay in Connecticut for the winter, so they've got to get down to you know, the Carolinas or even, I, I don't know exactly how far they go, but there are some salt marsh sparrows that winter in Florida um, on the Gulf Coast and the East Coast. 
So they're going to end up further south. They need um, some healthy body mass stores in order to get to their wintering grounds. So that does have consequences. And parasites, the, I, I think these authors said there aren't studies specific to the salt marsh sparrow, but in other birds, there are studies that show that parasites affect both the body mass of juveniles, you know, first-year birds that have just fledged, and so it matters for those juveniles being able to do a successful first migration and survive the winter, but also it matters for the adults, the females or whoever, whatever bird has been incubating, uh, their body mass is also affected by parasites. And so if you're an adult who's been incubating and your body mass is lower because of a high parasite load in the nest, you're going to have a harder time on migration and surviving the winter. Yeah. So totally. there's fitness benefits both for the, the juveniles and for the adults to have a sort of lower parasite load in the nest. Yep. Parasites are also known to matter for blood infections in other birds. Um, so the more ectoparasites, the more mites and ticks there are, the more blood infections the bird have. And this is, again, sort of a health cost that can matter during migration and other high-stress periods, winter, cold times, things like that. And there are studies that have directly measured lower overall reproductive success um, with high parasite loads. So you just produce fewer chicks. So It's kind of like being sick or like having bed bugs or something. Like you just, it's just bad. <laughs> Makes yeah. you feel bad. <laughs> Everything's a little bit worse. That's kind of how I think of it. Yeah, but, but feeling bad and having things worse doesn't necessarily matter in an evolutionary system right. if it's not causing a decrease in reproduction. Yeah. You right. Can feel what bad. matters is the effect on your reproductive success. Yeah. It's how many babies you have and how many babies those babies have. Yep. And so just feeling bad isn't enough. Just being sick isn't enough. What matters is whether it really reduces your reproduction. And it seems like parasites do. I think it's an open question how severe that is, especially in saltmarsh sparrows where this really hasn't been studied. I don't think there's any estimate of how much your reproductive success goes down for a 10% increase in parasites. Right, yeah. So how much reproduction success do they gain from having 15% fewer parasites in their nest? We don't know. But if there, if there is some sort of balancing act going on between the nest losses from flooding and the benefits from losing parasites, that would suggest it's kind of big. Yeah, for sure. And we know it's, there has been... There's been a fair number of studies that have looked at some trade-offs with parasites and other things with cavity nesters. And so we know that birds that nest in cavities have a limited site selection for their nests. They're using holes that already exist, and, and they get used a lot over and over again, year after year, by, by different birds nesting in the same holes if they're you know convenient, good nesting locations. So that can mean that there's a high parasite presence in those nest sites. And the question is, what's the trade-off between, you know, nesting in kind of a heavily infested hole and, you know, having a really good hole that protects you from predators <laughs> really well? Yeah, so some of those trade-offs have been looked at more specifically with other birds, just not with salt marsh sparrows. And it's possible, too, that, um, you know, that this trade-off isn't entirely about the parasites. So as you mentioned in the beginning... Uh, predators can be less frequent in flooded areas. Right. And so it could be, um, or, or, or other nest parasites like brown-headed cowbirds are much less likely to lay eggs in, 
in tidal areas than in other areas. So basically underwater. <laughs> yeah. So they're escaping some of the other possible problems. So that could add into the benefits of being in floodable areas. Right. It, yeah. It's not such a simple system where like the there's a pure trade-off between parasite load and flooding. You know, there's lots of other dynamics happening in there. But this result showing that flooded nests have 15% fewer parasites shows that this parasite could really be part of the story. Like, that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty notable decrease. And even though the sample size is small, you know, I'm looking at the box plots and looking at the statistics, and it's pretty convincing. I mean, the, the difference looks real. You know, I, I don't think this is just sort of a small sample size uh, artifact. I think this is looks like a fairly real difference between these nests. Yeah, which is a cool result. I yeah, mean, it's it just, very cool. Yeah, you're, it means that we're looking at, at like an actual evolutionary trade-off. The exciting thing about this to me is that evolution isn't something that already happened. Right. We don't get species that are in their niche and evolved for their niche and now they've arrived and they're done. This is, this is a, a balancing act and it's still going. And yeah. so as sea levels rise or weather patterns change, it's probably a very fine balance. If the flooding just gets a little more common, then that might tip the balance to this being an unsuccessful strategy yep. anymore. Or if the parasites get a little more common because maybe the, the parasites aren't getting killed by cold winters. I mean, who mm, knows? There sure. could be any number of things that would then trade tip that balance towards a benefit to having flooding that washed out the parasites. So this is a very active um, sort of trade-off potentially here. Yeah, but it is important to note the differences between like an active evolutionary trade-off and like a risk management decision by individual birds. Like this isn't necessarily, we don't have evidence that suggests that this is a decision that individual salt marsh sparrow adults are making. Like, well, this year I'm going to put my nest in a slightly more flooded area because, yeah, slightly more inundated area. Um, because I think I'm going to have less parasites. That's not no, a I don't, decision that's being made. I don't think the birds are doing that at all. And, and in fact, this article did say that there's some evidence that when taller vegetation is available, the salt marsh sparrows will nest in the taller vegetation. So they do seem, when they're given the choice, they kind of avoid the flooding a little bit, which might suggest that the, the balance point is not, you know, that they would like to escape a little more flooding if they could. Yeah, which kind of makes me wonder about how the structure of coastal marshes may have changed over over the years. Because, I mean, coastal marshes have just been subject to a, a, a lot of degradation. <laughs> they're, they're not in great shape on the east coast of North America, frankly. So, um, you know, I kind of wonder if, if uh, maybe there used to be taller grasses that salt marsh sparrows could more regularly get up higher and avoid some of this inundation. And now the structure of the marsh is such that they are kind of forced into some more flooded areas. There's also the possibility of competition with other species. So this article mentions that the seaside sparrow nests in similar areas, but in a little bit taller vegetation. Yep. So maybe if there is no seaside sparrow, the salt marsh sparrows would love to expand in the ha that habitat, that taller, drier vegetation. And they might just be prevented by that sort of superior competitor. Right. And so they're limited to an, an environmental or ecological niche that isn't actually their ideal from, ecologic, from an ecological or environmental standpoint, but is ideal because they're more fitted to that than their competitor species. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the fact that they can be submerged for 90 minutes and, like, come out the other side is kind of wild.
Yeah, they've, they've got a... It's a cool adaptation. <laughs> they can do something that many other birds cannot do. Yeah. And it seems that they're able to, to take advantage of that, and it, it might come with some other benefits. Okay, so Wilson, now let's back up for a second. We kind of skipped over the nest material results. So, like, tell us a little bit about what they found in terms of how nest material affects the parasite load. Well, they did find a statistically significant relationship between the nest material and the parasites. So there were significantly fewer ectoparasites in nests that were mostly built out of smooth cord grass than nests built from other materials. But uh, the smooth cord grass grows predominantly in lower, wetter, more flood-prone areas. And so this uh, nest material variable is basically confounded with the flooding variable. Right, so it's hard to actually tell how much is the nest material and how much is the fact that it happens to grow in the flooded areas. Right, so more, more smooth grass, you get fewer parasites, but also more smooth grass means you get more flooding. And so is it the smooth grass that's causing fewer parasites or is it the flooding? And especially with a really small sample size like this, um, it's a little hard to, to sort of pick those apart and know for sure. But it is possible that the smooth cord grass might, might have a different sort of structure, like it's, it might have fewer nooks and crannies, and so there aren't places for the parasites to hide in there. It's, there, there are at least some plausible mechanisms where the material, the nest material, might affect the parasite load. They can't know for sure from this study, but that would definitely be something to follow up on. Yeah, right. And in all likelihood, I mean, it is a combination of the the flood proneness of the area plus the nest material. I mean, there are always lots of confounding factors happening in there. So teasing out which, what particular parts of that relationship are attributed to what thing is difficult. But. Yeah, even if you had a, a larger sample size with an observational study like this, you would always just have a little nagging doubt in the back right. of your mind. Is it is it one variable or the other? Because they'll always be confounded. However, if you were to do a manipulative experimental study, you could tease that apart a little better than you can with an observational study. Mm, so you, totally. could, you could take a nest that was built mostly with smooth cord grass and move it to a higher, drier area so that it doesn't get flooded. So this removes that correlation between the cord grass and the flooding because now we've got cord grass as a material, but we can make sure it doesn't get flooded. And so then you could sort of, you transplant that nest and then you watch that nest and see what happens. And if it still shows that reduction in parasites, then you can have a little more confidence that it's because of the cord grass. If that difference in parasites disappears, then that suggests that maybe it was more the flooding that mattered and not the cord grass. Sure. Um, It'd be a tough experiment to do because, of course, you would have no guarantee that like the adult sparrow would keep providing for the nest if you moved it and whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm sure that um, because this is an endangered species, they'd have to... <laughs> yeah they'd have to be pretty sure that they wouldn't be harming the birds too much by doing that. Um, but I think, you know, this, this study, if I recall correctly, is part of a, a fairly large ongoing study of salt marsh sparrows that they've been doing. I could be wrong about that, but that was my memory. I think that's right. Um, and so it could be that they already know something about how um, manipulating nests disturbs or does not disturb the birds, and that it, it might be something that they're able to do. You're right, it would be difficult, and you'd have to make sure you get it right, but it might be a possibility. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think the authors actually suggest that some manipulative experiments um, would let them sort of 
untangle the, the multiple different things happening in the system a little better. This is not important, but I do think that this field work sounds particularly fun. You just spend a lot of time wading through the marsh, looking for nests, monitoring nests. You know, you get to keep track of, of individual nests and how they do. And Yeah, watching uh, birds throughout the nesting process is really interesting. And it's you fun. know, this this type of a study is is not something that you have to go to extreme, you know, environments to observe. Like I've often wondered about American robin nests. Because mm. sometimes you see a robin, you know, and their their nest is just out in the like clearly visible in a tree and there's a bunch of um you know fledglings making a lot of noise and you just think to yourself, how on earth is this not gonna get attacked by a crow? or grabbed by a squirrel or something like that. Hmm. Um, and you could do a similar type of a study, you know, in, of, with, with nests that are fairly easy to observe. Um, because again, it's the kind of thing where you see something with what seems like a very big cost. You have to ask, how is it that, that such an expensive behavior is still surviving in the population? Yeah. That should, if it was really as expensive as it looks, <laughs> you would think that it would not be there anymore. Yeah, I don't know. My guess about American robins would be that uh, their proximity to humans in most of those super observable nests probably keeps away a lot of other maybe, potential predators. Maybe, but they're outdoor house cats. I mean, the other possibility is that Good in most cases... Well, those... I think a lot of robins get ate by house cats. Yeah, <laughs> they I get mean, eaten, I, I should say. The possibility there is that those nests do fail uh, and that that's basically a population sink and eat. All, all those robins that nest in those very vulnerable areas don't leave any offspring, um, but there's just sort of enough in the population to support that sink that it's not causing the population to decline because yeah. the population is very successful right. in other yeah, totally. better nest areas. Hmm. The other interesting thing, just as a side note in this article, I was looking at the list of invertebrates that they found in the nests, um, and there's all kinds of stuff. So the the Majority of the parasites were mites and ticks. So these are, I mean, I don't know how familiar most of the listeners are to, with invertebrates, but ticks and mites are not insects, actually. They, insects have three pairs of legs, like so six legs total. Mites and ticks actually have four pairs of legs, so eight legs total. Um, but they're arthropods still. They're sort of, you know, little invertebrate things. They have exoskeletons and uh, their mites are very common in soil. And um, uh, anyway, lots of mites and ticks. They also had snails in there, spiders, which isn't that very surprising. They had a bunch of amphipods, which are little like marine crustaceans, basically, like not really shrimp, but sort of you can think of a shrimp and you sort of get the idea, tiny little marine crustaceans. Uh, and basically the, some stuff that you just wouldn't expect in a bird nest, the amphipods and the, sm the snails yeah. especially. Right, because they're underwater. <laughs> yeah, right. They're just, they're in these, um, you know, aquatic environments. And those things are probably not in the nest preferentially. They're probably all over all of the marsh grass. Right, yeah. Um, but I do kind of yeah, wonder, it's sort cool. of, it, it'd be sort of an interesting little side, side question because those are uh, organisms that are not usually put into contact. Birds and amphipods right. in your nest is not a common thing. Yeah, in a nesting environment, probably not. Yeah, so yeah. I just wonder kind of what interactions there are happening there. Maybe none. Maybe they're just living side by side. So I guess it turns out that if you put your nest in an area that's going to get inundated by the tide frequently, you might have some 
benefits if you're able to withstand the, the water. Yeah, very cool uh, relationship here, cost-benefit trade-off, and a very interesting sort of evolutionary question. If you want to read this article for yourself, once again, the article is called Tidal Flooding is Associated with Lower Ectoparasite Intensity in Nests of the Salt Marsh Sparrow by Josh Nightingale and Chris S. Elphick. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie/ecomodel.